Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, by your Spirit, we ask that you will enable us to hear, to learn, to meditate, and to digest your word in such a way that we may be strengthened, sanctified, and conformed to the image of Christ. We ask that you will take away every distraction that comes from the world, flesh, and devil. We ask that through the preaching and hearing of your word, the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus, will be exalted high. In his name we pray. Amen. In year 1627, a Dutch man named George Candidius was sent to Taiwan, my country, by Dutch Reformed Church as the very first Protestant missionary to Taiwan. He and several other Dutch ministers were preaching the gospel and planting churches among the Aboriginal people in Taiwan. But later, in God's providence, they were driven out by Chinese people, and their work didn't seem to last too long. And then 240 years later, in 1864, a Scottish man named James Maxwell was sent to the southern part of Taiwan by Presbyterian Church of England as the very first Presbyterian missionary to Taiwan. And then seven years later, a Canadian man named George Leslie McKay was sent to the northern part of Taiwan by Canada Presbyterian Church as a missionary. In the beginning, they were reviled, they were mocked, they were beaten by local people, and these local people even threw human waste upon their faces. Decades went by as they persevered by God's grace. God really blessed their labors. Men and women were converted, and churches were planted, even continue to this day. Had not God sent this man to Taiwan and blessed their work, then I would not have had heard of the gospel. Then I would still have been in darkness and sin even to this day. While this is a small picture of the Great Commission, which we will examine tonight, the Great Commission that the Lord Jesus entrusted to the church 2,000 years ago. The sovereign Lord chooses to use finite yet faithful men to preach the gospel and to build up the church in all nations for the worship of the triune God on all the earth. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. As we see in Matthew 28, Jesus commissioned them to engage in a very specific mission, namely to go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching them to obey Jesus' word. So this is the mission work that the Lord commissioned the church to do, which we often call the Great Commission. It's vitally important for Christians to understand the Great Commission for several reasons. It's important because the Lord Jesus gave this Great Commission not only to the, the apostles in the first century, but also to the church in every generation and every place. It's important for us to understand because every Christian should be a part of the Great Commission, though not all in the same way. It's important to understand also because Christians often have a very vague and even confused view on what the Great Commission really is. It's important also because we often lack confidence 
about the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So this passage, Lord willing, will bring to light what the Great Commission really is and how we ought to think about it and how we ought to be part of it. And what I want to show you this evening from this passage is this. By Jesus' authority, the church is commissioned to send out ministers to make disciples of all nations while depending upon his presence. And notice that minister, pastor, and teaching elder all refer to the same office, which I might use interchangeably. So consider three things with me from this passage. First of all, the authority of Jesus that empowers the Great Commission. And second, the work of the Great Commission defined by Jesus. And third, the presence of Jesus that guarantees the success of the Great Commission. So authority, work, and presence. So first of all, we see the authority of Jesus that empowers the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Before Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, he first declared to them the reality that he possessed all authority. Jesus' supreme and universal authority is the very foundation for the Great Commission. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? Well, it's not talking about his divine nature. Because Jesus' divine nature is unchangeable. And so as God, he cannot receive anything other than he has already possessed from all eternity. Rather, all authority here is referring to Jesus' state of exaltation. As we read a moment ago of our larger catechism, Jesus as the God-man, redeemer, and mediator. But we know that Jesus is the eternal son of God. The same is substance, equal in power and glory with God the Father. But in order to save the elect from their sin and misery, Jesus took to himself a true humanity, both body and soul, while his divine nature remained unchanged. As man, in his humanity, Jesus voluntarily entered into an estate of humiliation by his being conceived and born of Virgin Mary, a human mother, and also by undergoing the miseries of this life and the wrath of God, and also by suffering death on the cross. But thankfully, this is not the end of the story. As we are told in Philippians chapter 2, because of Jesus' perfect obedience in humiliation, God rewarded him by highly exalting him and bestowing upon him the name which is above every name. In Jesus' exaltation as the God-man redeemer, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus was given all authority to save all his elect and build up his own church. With Jesus' all authority, Jesus is restraining, conquering, and binding Satan, just like binding strongmen and plundering his house, as we are told by Jesus in Matthew 12, so that Satan would deceive the nations no longer, and the gospel would be able to spread even to all nations in the New Testament era, as we are told in Revelation 20. With all authority, Jesus is pouring out the Holy Spirit 
to empower his ministers to preach the gospel and to plant churches in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, as we are told in Acts 8, 1-8. With all authority, Jesus is effectually applying saving grace upon his elect, as we are told in Acts 5.31. He, referring to the extorted Jesus, is the one whom God extorted to his right hand as the prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. With all authority, Jesus has received and given the gifts for the church, particularly the gifts of pastor and teacher for the building up of his church, as we are told in Ephesians chapter 4. This is what Jesus meant when he said, all authority has been given to me. The powerful authority to destroy the kingdom of Satan and the powerful authority to advance the kingdom of grace, not only locally, but also universally, globally. Jesus' exaltation with all authority is absolutely necessary for the Great Commission. Without Jesus' powerful authority, there's no hope whatsoever for anyone to be converted. And there's no hope for any church to survive. Well, Jesus' authority is very significant, not only because of the challenges to evangelism. It's important also because of the Old Testament promises. The first readers of this passage would have noticed Jesus' authority is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. As we read a moment ago, in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, Prophet Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Does this language sound familiar to you? Yes, all peoples, all nations, men of every language, and dominion of the Son of Man. Yes, this prophecy in Daniel 7 is being fulfilled in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. When these disciples heard these words from Jesus' lips about his authority, they must have recalled and also rejoiced that this Jesus before them, the one who has died and risen, is exactly the long-awaited Son of Man promised in the book of Daniel. He's the one who will be extorted high with all authority to subdue men of all nations to be his disciples. Well, brothers and sisters, do you adore Jesus as the risen and extorted and reigning king in heaven with all authority. While you should appreciate Jesus' humiliation in every way, you should never lose sight of his exaltation because without his exaltation, his humiliation, his death would do you no good. And even now, when you receive any benefit from the worship service, when there is any conversion in any corner of the world, it's only because the exalted Jesus 
is now showering the saving graces from heaven upon his people with all authority. And therefore, praise him, adore him for his all authority. Well, we have seen Jesus declaring his supreme authority, which alone empowers the Great Commission. Now, this passage shows us that the central work, the work of the Great Commission. So the central work of the Great Commission, in a nutshell, is for the church to ordain and send out ministers, pastors, teaching elders, to go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching the word. So let me show you five things about the work of the Great Commission. I'll unpack it one by one by asking five questions and answering them. So first of all, why should we go and do the work of the Great Commission? Why? Look at verse 19 again with me. Verse 19 we read, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Notice the word, therefore. This word, therefore, shows a cause and effect relationship between Jesus' authority and our action to go. Because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth, therefore, we can and we should go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, Jesus' all authority is the ground and motivation for the action of Great Commission. Jesus' sovereign power never denies nor downplays our action for the Great Commission. Rather, His sovereign power and authority always demands and upholds our action. This is true in all our obedience. But this is especially true to our obedience to the Great Commission. Our sovereign Lord sovereignly chooses to use and bless our feeble efforts to fulfill His Great Commission. So because of Jesus' authority, therefore the church should go and make disciples of all nations. Secondly, who should go? And how should they go to do the work of the Great Commission? Well, obviously, there's no way for the entire church to go physically to all nations. So who exactly are the persons that should go? Well, notice in our text, these men, these apostles, they were commissioned to go. Those who were commissioned to go, they, they were not going by their own initiative, but they were sent by Jesus. They were not just whatever men either, nor are they self-appointed. Neither did they decide by themselves to do whatever they thought would be helpful. Rather, they were men chosen, appointed, gifted, and sent out by the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, the Lord of the harvest, with a very specific job description, namely to make disciples of all nations. Even after Jesus ascended into heaven, Jesus continued to empower the church by the Spirit to ordain and send men out to the nations to do the work of the mission. As we are told in Acts 13, verse 2, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church in Antioch set apart and sent Paul and Barnabas for the first missionary journey. 
And, and Paul noticed that the apostle didn't say, hey, I'm an apostle, so I, I don't really need the church to stand me. I can just go by myself. No, he didn't say anything like that. Rather, he submitted to the church as the standing agency for his mission work. And then in Acts 13.4, we are specifically told that these two men, Paul and Barnabas, they were sent by the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here? In other words, by the authority of Jesus, through his word and spirit, the church, throughout the generations, should continue to set apart, ordain, and send out ministers or teaching elders, pastors, to all nations, so that they may make disciples of all nations. Now, this does not mean that the church should not stand out non-ordained men, non-ordained people, to help the mission work. Yes, the church can do so whenever it is profitable, but the purpose is always to help open the doors of the gospel in the mission field so that the ministers of the gospel can preach the gospel more freely, more widely, and more effectively through this help. So the church should set apart and stand out ordained ministers for the work of the Great Commission. Thirdly, where, where should they go to do the work of the Great Commission? As we are told in verse 19, Jesus demands the disciples to be, to be made not only among the Jews, but also in all nations. Jesus is the Savior and Lord, not only for the Jews, but also for all nations all peoples of all ethnicities and all languages. Jesus will multiply his churches not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but also in Samaria and the end of the earth. And notice that the global nature of the Great Commission is not an afterthought following the apostasy of the Jews. No, it is not as though God were saying, well, I have given my dear son for the salvation of these Jews. But, but, but look, now these stubborn Jews have all mostly apostatized and rejected my son, so I guess I need to find some other people to fill the gap. No, this is one, not what the Bible teaches. On the contrary, from all eternity, God already decreed, predetermined to save his elect from all nations. And throughout the Old Testament, God kept prophesying and promising salvation for all peoples and all nations. As we find in Genesis 12, God promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then we are told in Galatians 3.14 that all families or all nations are to be blessed in Abraham and with Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ who was cursed in their place. But now the question is, how is Jesus to be heard and believed in all nations? Well, the answer is through the preaching of the gospel by ordained ministers sent out by the church to all nations. Likewise, in Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we read the conversation between the father and the son regarding the son's global mission. The father says to the son in Psalm 2, 7, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, 
and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthware. Again, the language is very familiar. That's the Great Commission language, even appearing in the Old Testament. This is the promise that the Son of God shall destroy his enemies and shall save his elect from all nations in order to possess them as his precious and special people. For centuries, this, those faithful Jews in the Old Testament era, they must have been praying for these promises in their Old Testament scripture. And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28 is nothing less than God's answer to their prayers and to these promises for the Great Commission. The time has come that the gospel shall be preached to all nations and not just confined within Judea, that God may be worshipped as the Lord and King in the whole world. Fourthly, the question is, what is the work of the Great Commission? What is the work? The central and essential work of the Great Commission is to make disciples, as we are told in verse 19. To make a disciple is one Greek word that comes from the Greek word for disciple. So what does disciple mean? What is a disciple? Well, a disciple means a committed learner and follower. That means that a disciple is learning from his teacher, not just occasionally or casually, but constantly, seriously, diligently, and wholeheartedly, not just to gain some knowledge, but to practice what he has learned from his teacher, and ultimately to follow his teacher with personal loyalty and affection. A disciple is so committed to his teacher that he not only lives for the teaching of his teacher, but he's also willing to die for his teacher. Polycarp, as you probably know, was one of the early church fathers and martyrs in the second century. Before he was martyred, the Roman governor was trying to persuade him to deny and revile Jesus in exchange for his release. In response, Polycarp, an 86-year-old man, said these words touchingly, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? And this is a true disciple of Jesus, being so committed to him that, and his word that he's even willing to die for him. And notice that disciple refers to the same people as Christian. Oftentimes you might hear the idea that, well, disciples might be a mature Christians. Well, but notice the term disciple refers to the same people as Christian. As we see in Acts 11, 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In other words, disciples are not a special class within Christians. Rather, all Christians are our disciples, and all disciples are Christians as well. Whenever a person is converted, he's a disciple, no different from a Christian. To be a Christian means to be a follower of Christ, and that is the disciple. So again, the central work of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. And then fifth, the question, 
how to do the work of the Great Commission. In other words, how to make disciples. In verses 19 and 20, notice two words which define and describe the central work of making disciples. Look at verses 19 and 20 again with me. Here we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So disciples are made by these two actions, baptizing and teaching. What is baptizing or what is baptism? Well, baptism is not something of a magical power. Rather, baptism is a sign and seal, a picture, a confirmation of the saving benefits in Christ, particularly our adoption by the Father into the family of God, our union with Christ and his cleansing blood, and our regeneration by the power of the Spirit, and also our entrance into the visible church. This is what baptism represents. And because baptism represents our entrance into the church, therefore, baptism here implies church and church planting. Whenever ministers are sent out to places where there is no church, ordinarily, they should not only preach and baptize, but they should also plant churches so that these new believers and their children may join the church to be nourished in the body of Christ and the household of God. Baptism is a picture of our salvation, not only individually, but also corporately. Now, disciple-making is to be done not only by baptizing converts and their children, but also by teaching them to obey Jesus' word as we are told in verse 20. So here the term teaching includes both private instruction and exhortation and public teaching and preaching according to the word of God. Notice here that Jesus is not saying teaching them all that I have commanded. But he's saying more than that. He's saying teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded. Do you see the difference here? The kind of teaching that Jesus is demanding is not just communicating the right information about Jesus, but also to teach people to obey Jesus' word. In other words, the only kind of teaching that makes disciples is both to explain the word of God faithfully, clearly to the minds of God's people and to apply the word of God directly and experientially to the hearts and lives of God's people according to their needs. Knowledge about Jesus without obedience is no different than the devil's knowledge about Jesus. The devil knows about Jesus better than you and I do. And yet he only trembles because he does not obey, as we are told in James chapter 2. Notice as well, what Jesus is saying here is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The kind of teaching that makes disciple is to teach not some, but all that Jesus has commanded, namely the whole counsel of God, the entire scripture. In other words, according to the great commission defined by Jesus, 
ministers, pastors, and teaching elders, they are bound to make disciples by teaching people in all places, everywhere, not just to believe in Jesus, but also to turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus. Not just to be forgiven of their sin in Jesus, but also to hate and mortify their sin by the power of Jesus. Not just sweet promises in Jesus, but also severe warnings coming from the mouth of Jesus. Not just grace for those who trust in Jesus, but also judgment upon those who reject Jesus. Not just Jesus as the Savior and Redeemer, but also Jesus as the Lord and King and Judge. The Great Commission requires the whole Bible to be taught and preached. And that is the kind of teaching that really makes faithful disciples of Christ Jesus. The preaching and teaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, along with prayer, should be the central work of the Great Commission. You see the same model in Acts chapter 2. After the Apostle Peter preached sermon in the Pentecost, 3,000 men were converted and baptized, and then they joined the church. Again, you see the word and sacrament in the context of the church. And then in Acts 2.42, these new converts, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, which is Lord's Supper, and also prayer. Again, you see the same thing, the word, sacrament, and prayer in the context of the church. And the result was, as we are told in Acts 2.47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. God has appointed, and God also promised to bless the word, prayer, and sacraments as the ordinary means of grace to build up his church in all nations. Well, brothers and sisters, you should be very, very grateful that our sovereign Lord is even willing to use us as a church for the work of the Great Commission, even though he does not need us at all. The Lord is more than able to fulfill the mission work by himself without us. And frankly, we as sinners, we are not always that easy to use. You know this. It's usually much easier for, for you to do your house chores by yourself than to train your children to do the same house chores. But what should amaze you here is this. The Almighty God is even able to use such finite, feeble, and fallible men and women, boys and girls like you and me, to complete his great commission because of his power and wisdom in spite of our sin and weakness. What a great and awesome God we serve, adore him. You should understand as well the work of the Great Commission according to Jesus' definition in the Bible. It's easy for us to confuse the mission work of the church with so many other good things which are not the mission work of the church. Things such as digging wells, disaster relief, distributing food and clothes. These things are good things, and they can be very useful and helpful for the mission work. Nonetheless, 
they are not the central work of the Great Commission. Rather, they should be properly called the Mercy Ministry. And they ought to support and subordinate to the mission work rather than replace it nor to compete with it. Again, the central work of the Great Commission is for the church to send out ordained ministers to plant churches by preaching and teaching the word and by administering the sacraments accompanied by prayers. So let me ask you, do you believe that the greatest need in the whole world is the gospel, regardless of whether people are wealthy or poor, healthy or sick, educated or uneducated, civilized or, or barbarian? The world can offer all kinds of good things in this life, but only the church can offer the gospel. And the church must offer the gospel to this dying and fallen world by sending out gospel ministers to preach the gospel to all nations. Do you trust the Lord will use the means of grace, the word, prayer, and sacraments to save sinners and build up his church? regardless of what culture, background they are from? Or do you somehow think, well, means of grace, this is good, but not enough, and the church still needs some more attractive programs and gimmicks other than the means of grace ordained by God? Is that why you think? Or perhaps you are thinking, the mission work is only for ordained ministers and has nothing to do with you. Well, the Great Commission has everything to do with you. Although Matthew 28 is primarily focused on sending out ordained ministers to preach and teach the word, nonetheless, these ministers, they will not bear fruit unless you support them, unless you pray for them, unless you encourage them. As a church member, your support for the mission work matters and counts in every way. The Lord has given you certain resources and gifts that he will use to support the gospel preaching and church planting around the globe. So let me encourage you tonight to think prayerfully how you may support the mission work to the best of your abilities, your gifts, and your resources. Not to compare yourself with anyone else, but as the Lord has granted you, whether by prayer, financial support, mission trips, or anything else. And children, let me speak to you. Come on, children, look at me. Pay attention to me. You are not too young to support the Great Commission. You can pray for missionaries. You can write cards to encourage them. You can remind your daddy to pray for missionaries during family worship. In fact, I would love for you to pray for me and send cards to me after I go back to Taiwan for the mission work there. Please do so. Do you pray for the Lord as well to raise up faithful gospel ministers who are willing and able to preach and teach the word faithfully, clearly, and unequivocally in other nations where there are not as many solid churches? Do you pray for faithful seminaries as well, that they will continue to train men to be such faithful ministers for the disciple-making of the nations. The purity of the minister in his life and teaching is absolutely necessary for the Great Commission.
Oh, Jesus not only gave the great commission to the church, but he also promises his presence. That guarantees the success of the great commission. So thirdly, we see the presence of Jesus that guarantees the success of the great commission. Look at verse 20 with me. So after Jesus described the work of the great commission, he goes on to say, Lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here, Jesus is promising his perpetual presence with his ministers and also the churches represented by them as they are sent out to preach the gospel and plant churches. It's important for them because what awaits them ahead is not pleasure but persecution from the world. It's not reputation but rejection of the world. So by saying, lo or behold, Jesus is urging them, is demanding their attention to remember, to believe, and to depend upon his presence. All ministers who are faithfully preaching the gospel, they all desperately need Jesus' presence. They won't endure the persecution of the world. They won't endure the assaults of Satan unless Jesus keeps them in his presence. Notice that Jesus' presence is not wishful thinking. Instead, Jesus himself is ever-present with his church and ministers by his Holy Spirit, not physically but spiritually, and yet truly and really and powerfully. In Jesus' presence, Jesus is always sustaining his church. Think about those times when heresies attacked the church in the early church period, such as Arianism, that denied the deity of Christ. And remember, they did not have the Westminster Confession or Catechisms to help them at that time. And yet, God continued to raise up defenders of the truth, such as Athanasius, to defend and expound the holy doctrines of the Scripture. In his presence, Jesus has also always been growing and expanding his church around the world over the past 2,000 years in spite of the barriers of language, locality, and culture. Think about the fact that you and I, we were once hopeless sinners, Gentiles, thousands of miles away from the early church in Jerusalem, and yet God still built up his church here and saved us from our sin and brought us into his household, the church. Perhaps you are discouraged to hear many churches are plagued by theological liberalism and moral corruption. Perhaps tonight you are disheartened to hear that so many churches are persecuted by society and the government in so many places of the world. But let me encourage you and ask you, do you believe that Jesus' presence with the church is such that the church will never die but will continue to grow like a tiny mustard seed growing into a large tree where birds come and nest regardless of the strongest possible opposition? Or do you still entertain the false idea that the church will always be small, tiny, and weak so you don't even bother to pray for the Great Commission? Or remember, Jesus, the one with all authority, is always building up his church in all nations 
through his perpetual and powerful presence. Jesus is most optimistic about the global growth of the church. So should you, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged, be confident, be optimistic to pray for the success of the Great Commission. Let me ask you as well. Do you pray for those suffering churches and ministers around the globe whenever you can know anything about them? Do you pray for them with compassion as if you were also suffering with them in prison because the ever-present Jesus is full of compassion with his suffering people? Or do you somehow think, I don't care much about those churches that are so far away, those people I don't know nothing about them, so I just want to be happy and be taken by the Lord and live a happy life. I just want to be taken by the Lord to heaven as quickly as possible. I don't care about them. Well, let me remind you, Jesus who has shed his blood to purchase the church, Jesus who is dearly present with the church, is always sympathetic with his suffering churches and servants. And he will never allow such indifference to his beloved church. Finally, by way of application, let me ask you this very fundamental question. Are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus? Obeying his word, delighting in his presence, and under his saving authority. Or are you still a disciple of the world and Satan, resenting Jesus' word, despising his authority, and as you are still under his condemning authority? Is that your condition? If that's your condition, let me plead with you tonight. Turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus so that you may be his beloved disciple. Or perhaps tonight, you are a true disciple, and yet you are struggling with following Jesus, and you are tempted to follow the world. Let me encourage you to lay hold of Jesus, to feed upon him through the ordinary means of grace, the words, sacraments, and prayer, which he has ordained for your good. Jesus will bless these means to mature you as his beloved disciple by his powerful authority and presence here now as much as in the nations. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have decreed to save your elect from all nations. We thank you for sending your son, our Lord Jesus, who has suffered and died for us in his humiliation. And now he has been raised and exalted high with all authority so that we may have every hope for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to raise up and send out faithful gospel ministers and bless their preaching by the Holy Spirit so that your church may continue to grow and expand in all nations. We pray all these things confidently in the name of our risen and reigning Lord and King, even Jesus Christ. Amen.